Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, Brian Lehrer here. Up next, Brian Lehrer Weekend. Three of our favorite segments from the week packaged together for you to listen to on the weekend. So enjoy, and I'll see you back on the radio Monday at 10 a.m. on WNYC and WNYC.org. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. Here in the 21st century, seems like every couple of years comes a major upheaval to the country and the world, right? What might have been once-in-a-lifetime shocks feel like they're increasing in frequency. I think it's one of the most important facts of life for the current generations. One year into this century, we experienced September 11th. Then came the financial crisis, the Arab Spring. Brexit, the election of Donald Trump, and all the Democratic backsliding that came with his term in office, not to mention the Democratic backsliding around the world, and then not to mention COVID, Ukraine, Gaza, all in the last four years. A new book takes a closer look at these life-changing events and others in the recent past in the context of what's known as chaos theory and pinpoints the seemingly small moments that triggered these global events, like how one vegetable vendor in central Tunisia set himself on fire in protest. Who remembers that? That triggered the Arab Spring, which toppled dictators in the region and unleashed all kinds of other conflict. Or how one person infected with the COVID-19 virus in Wuhan, China, changed the way we live our lives for years after. Or how Trump probably decided, or at least possibly decided, to run for president after Barack Obama humiliated him with a joke at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2011. Well, here to help us understand why all this upheaval might be happening now, some things to do about it, and he's also been writing and speaking out on why he thinks the media and the general public should pay more attention, not less, to Donald Trump these days, is Brian Klass, contributing writer for The Atlantic, professor of global politics at University College London, and author of a brand new book titled Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Brian, so nice of you to join us with the book. Welcome back to WNYC. So nice to be on the show. Thanks for having me on. And you're right, the 21st century has been defined by unexpected shocks, major upheavals that have upended the world, up, upended the world. many of us have known and made our lives feel like the playthings of chaos. So it's not just me, right? Things that are this big are happening with more frequency than in the past? Yeah, so I think the the idea of black swans, a lot of people are familiar with, these sort of uh, rare consequential events that sort of wallop us in our complacency. I think we've designed a world that is extremely prone to black swans, more so than any period in human history. And another example, in addition to the ones you mentioned in the intro, was... Everyone remember the when the boat got stuck in the Suez Canal, there was a, a gust of wind and this boat gets stuck, it twists sideways. It caused an estimated $54 billion in economic damage from one boat, right? That was never possible before. And that's because we've engineered systems that are so hyper-optimized and so interconnected that when anything goes wrong, it can be catastrophic. You know, there's never been a period in human history where a single boat could wipe out, you know, part of a percentage point of GDP uh, around the world. Mm. 
And so, you know, what I think is also worth thinking about is how different our lives are than everybody else who came before us. So the vast sweep of human history has been defined by effectively uncertainty in the day-to-day life, right? Where it's like, you don't know where your food's going to come from. You don't know if an animal might eat you. But, you know, your parents and children lived in the same kind of world. They were all hunter-gatherers. It was like, you know, generation to generation, things were the same. We've completely inverted that dynamic now. So we have really regular local stability. In other words, our day-to-day life is extremely regular. You can go to Starbucks. It's always the same. You know, we have routine and order and structure in our lives. But our overall structure of the world is unstable, right? So parents and children live in completely different worlds. Children actually teach technology to parents for the first time. And on top of this, you know, I think this is the kind of stuff where I grew up in a world without the internet, and now we can't even imagine living without it. And that has never happened before in human history. It's embedded risk into our societies in ways that are unprecedented. So how much do you think the pace of change is because technology is changing faster than it did in the past? I think it's a huge driver of it. And I think it also means that the ripple effects of accidents and random catastrophes are felt much faster. But I also think there's a problem that we have, which is that we have been taught that the solution to every problem is to optimize to the absolute limit, to squeeze every ounce of efficiency out of our societies and our lives, right? In our lives, it's all these checklists and life hacks and so on. I think one of the things that is worth thinking about is how when you optimize to the limit where the system is at its absolute maximum, then when anything goes wrong, you're not resilient. The system becomes really brittle. So does your life, right? And so the Suez Canal is a perfect example of this. I mean, if there was resilience in the system in the sort of supply chains, then it would have been okay if the boat got stuck for a bit. But because there was no slack in the system, it became catastrophic. And I think this is where, you know, when I was a kid, my my grandfather gave me some pretty good life advice. I found uh, it was two words and it was avoid catastrophe. And, you know, I think that's sort of the thing that we've forgotten to learn when we build our social systems. Um, Not to get wonky. Okay. Yes. To get wonky. (laughs) You pull from a debate in evolutionary biology between what's called contingency and what's called convergence. I think our our listeners are wonky at this level. So would you break down the debate and talk about how it relates to what you've been saying? Yeah. So in evolutionary biology, the contingency is this idea where a small change can have a huge effect. The convergence is where things sort of work out in the end, regardless of little perturbations and random effects. The best examples for this in evolutionary theory are uh, the dinosaurs getting wiped out by an asteroid is a perfect example of contingency. Because if the asteroid, which, by the way, was flung from the distant reaches of space in a place called the Oort Cloud, if that space rock had hit in a slightly different time, you know, five seconds earlier, five seconds later, it might have missed the planet or it might not have made the dinosaurs go extinct. And if that had not happened, then mammals would not have risen and all of us would not exist. So it's this second by second thing where if that doesn't occur, none of us are alive, right? Humans don't exist. So that's contingency. So sort of stuff happens theory of evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Convergence is the ordered structure where certain things work and other things don't. So even though there's a bit of noise, it still ends up getting you to the same place in the end. So my favorite example of this is that, believe it or not, our eyes, human eyes and octopus eyes are really similar. And that's because even though there's been divergence among evolution for like 600 million years between these branches of life, the solution that worked, the eye, just ended up sort of evolving twice. And so the idea is, yeah, you've got a very different creature, but it ends up finding the same solution. Now, I think about this 
in human life with something I coined as a term called the snooze button effect. And this is where some people may have come across the film Sliding Doors. It's the same sort of idea where you imagine you wake up and it's Tuesday morning, you're tired, you slap the snooze button. Then your life immediately rewinds a split second and you decide not to slap the snooze button. And the question is, how different does your life unfold? How differently does your life unfold? If everything changes from that snooze button, then that's a contingent moment. If your life basically unfolds in the same way, it's a convergent moment. And I think it's a useful framework for thinking about social change and the way that our lives uh, move from, from, from moment to moment. I see people are already starting to call in. Uh, so listeners, just going to make sure everybody has the number if you want to say anything or ask a question of Brian Kloss from University College London, author of the new book, Fluke, Chance, Chaos. Let me say it right. Fluke. Chance, chaos, and why everything we do matters. And I guess that includes hitting the snooze button for another 10 minutes of sleep on Saturday morning or not. 212-433-WNYC. 212-433-9692. And if you want to ask him a question about the other topic that we're going to get to, I saw him on a political talk show the other day talking about an article that he wrote in October, which we'll get to, on why he thinks... The media is blowing it with the Donald Trump campaign in this election cycle, just like the media blew it in the 2016 election cycle, but sort of in the opposite way. So we're going to get to that. 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. I think Alex in Woodside wants to add uh, another big sort of black swan event to the list that we started with of things that are so big, happening so frequently in the 21st century. Alex, you're on WNYC. Thank you for calling in. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, mention the, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd a few years ago, you know, a horrible event. But that seemed to, uh, you know, result in such now mistrust of the police. I think if you showed folks a photo of a white police officer in a uh, neighborhood of color that a lot of people might feel like, okay, oh, yeah, that officer is definitely probably interested in violating somebody's rights. I just think that, you know, when with Bernie Madoff, I mean, what that scandal didn't seem to uh, initiate huge mistrust of financial planners, although no doubt there are many out there. Or So, I mean, again, I'm not, I, I do not want to in any way, shape or form, yeah. uh, you know, right. yeah, but just I that, understand. that event. Alex, thank you very much. Well, I mean, another way to look at George Floyd, if we're going to get into that, is that it was the culmination of a series of events over almost a decade, starting probably with the killing, even though it wasn't by a police officer per se, of Trayvon Martin, and then going to the um, the Ferguson, Missouri, and Staten Island, Eric Garner, examples from 2015, and the growth of Black Lives Matter gradually, and that George Floyd in 2020 was sort of the culmination of that causing the explosion. But on the other hand, Brian, uh, certainly there was something about George Floyd's killing, murder, as the court determined it to be, um, that was a flashpoint moment like none of those other ones that came before. I don't know if you mentioned George Floyd in the book. I don't mention him in the book, but I actually I grew up uh, a couple miles away from where he was killed. I, I'm, I'm from Minneapolis originally. And, uh -huh. you know, I think this is a contingent moment. I think there is um, there's a few things that could have gone very differently. And one of the ones that's the most obvious is if it, if it had not been filmed. 
And, you know, this is one of those things where the the sort of visceral mm. nature of that killing uh, really resonated around the world precisely because someone stopped and turned on their camera. And, you know, there, there are people who have died in, in horrific ways that have not produced ripple effects in quite such a, a, a global way because there was no video footage and so on. So I think there's, you know, there's a whole series of, of links in the causal chain of events that produce black swans or major consequential rare events. And if any of them had been slightly different, then the event either may not have had the same impact or its impact would have unfolded slightly differently. And I think, you know, if, if the George Floyd killing had happened in a different place, there might have been a different reaction to it. So it's very fragile when we think about cause and effect. And what we do as humans is we always stitch narratives backwards. We say, oh, that happened. And of course, it was always going to happen. And here's a trend that explains it. I think the sort of fragility of cause and effect is something that we are much more willing to discount because it's bewildering to imagine that all of these things that we think have neat and tidy explanations are actually sort of built on a near infinite number of random events that could have turned out slightly differently. Tony in Windsor Terrace wants to talk about chaos theory. Uh, Tony, you're on WNYC. Hello. Well, hi, Brian. And Professor, sounds like a really interesting book. And I was I'm curious to hear your thoughts on conspiracy theory across the political spectrum. Um, seems like chaos and conspiracy theory might be related in some ways, sort of wanting to come up with a simplified equation for everything when the scary truth is no one's in charge, everything's chaotic, entropy, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, do you have a theory of everything, Brian, that includes both Chaos theory, random event theory, as you've been describing it, and conspiracy theories, which, of course, are so much in the news and in our culture. I do. In fact, it is in the book. And I talk about conspiracy theories in Fluke. And the reason for that is because the human brain has evolved to be a pattern detection machine. And so we are exceptionally attuned to things that have relationships. And when randomness occurs, we're basically allergic to it. There's a, a, an author I admire immensely named Jonathan Gottschall who wrote a book called The Storytelling Animal. And what he says about conspiracy theories, which I think is highly persuasive, is that when sort of small or random events happen and they have consequential impacts, we always look for a story. And the conspiracy theorist's secret weapon is they have a really good story, right? It's, it's usually wrong, <laughs> but it's very interesting. Like QAnon is totally crazy, but QAnon is a very good story. It, was, it would be a thriller if it was made into a film. And so what you have is you have a brain that has evolved to detect patterns and the debunkers are saying there's no pattern. And what's really fascinating in the psychology of this is that you will ask conspiracy theorists about something that had a small random cause, like, for example, Princess Diana being uh, killed in a car accident. And people who believe in conspiracy theories around that death will simultaneously say that she is still alive and also that she was killed by the British government. And both of those things cannot be simultaneously true, but they would rather have a secret pattern than an explanation that seems so banal as a, a random car accident. Daniel in Riverdale wants to maybe push back on one of the concepts that you've laid out so far. Daniel, you're on WNYC with Brian Class. Hello. Hi, hello. Um, less than push back, but more just curious. Earlier, you said that making systems more efficient Um, also could make them more susceptible to be brittle. And I guess just intuitively that I am having trouble and maybe could use like more explanation on that. Yeah, so that's a great question. Why why would they be more brittle just because they're more efficient? 
Yeah, so it's not that it's not that efficiency is bad. It's that you get to a point where the system becomes less resilient because it's absolute at, at, at its maximum limit. So there's a thing I write about in the book called the sand pile model, which is a subset of physics. It's very easy to understand, though. It's you imagine you take a grain of sand and you start to add more grains of sand, and the, the pile builds up. Right? It gets really tall. A whole bunch of sand in a big pile. At some point, one extra grain of sand is going to cause that pile to collapse. It's on the what's called the edge of chaos. It's basically at the limit. Now, if the if the sand pile is slightly smaller, then each additional grain is not going to cause an avalanche. It's a little bit more resilient, and so what I'm saying is that a lot of our social systems and economics are like just in time supply chains and so on. They've hit the point where they're so efficient that the sand pile is at its absolute maximum, and then when some random accident occurs, like the Suez Canal being blocked by a boat. Everything is a cascade, and there's this avalanche, and the system breaks down. So it's not that efficiency as it itself is bad. It's that if we dial it down just a little bit, then the system, like the sand pile, can be slightly more resilient to shocks. Daniel, I hope that clarifies. So was Donald Trump's election in 2016 a fluke in the way you use the word fluke in the title of the book? Yeah, it's it's both. I mean, there's usually elements where there are there's order and trends and long-term patterns, and there's also contingent events. So, you know, the anger over immigration in the United States, the anti-establishment backlash, these are long-term things that are part of trends. Trump's election, though, could have gone slightly differently if, for example, the FBI investigation had not been reopened shortly before the election. And that was partly triggered by Anthony Anthony Weiner. The, the and so investigation that happened, into, into Hillary Clinton. Yeah, exactly. And so if that had not happened, then perhaps the election would have gone slightly differently. If the election had taken place a week earlier, a week later, maybe there would have been a different outcome. And so, you know, that in addition to the hypothesis that some people have suggested that you mentioned in the intro of, you know, was Trump's uh, decision to run triggered by being humiliated by a joke from Barack Obama in 2011? I mean, we don't know, right? But the, the point that I'm making here is I think there's lots of times where small changes can have big effects. And of course, nobody really believes that the world would be the same if Hillary Clinton had won. So, you know, just the possibility of that, I think, is so profound that it's worth grappling with um, these chains of flukes that might have led to the current moment. So let me make a segue here to the article that you wrote in the fall, um, which you can tell me whether it's relevant to the book, in your opinion, or whether it's just another thing that you think about. In October, you published an essay critiquing how the media have been covering Trump versus Biden ahead of the 2024 presidential election. And you wrote about, quote, the banality of crazy and how you think it's warping the way Americans think about politics in the Trump era. So where would you like to enter that? Yeah, so uh, I, I don't think it's particularly related to the book, but it is a, it's something that I do think about. It's a, it's a piece that I wrote for my newsletter, which is called The Garden of Forking Paths. But it's um, it's basically this idea that in the past, you know, so I, I can speak from personal experience. I live in the UK, and in 2017, when Trump would tweet anything, I mean literally anything, my phone would ring and the BBC or a different news outlet would want to talk to me about American politics. Now Trump can literally say things like, hey, maybe we should shoot uh, shoplifters, or maybe the top general, Mark Milley, should be executed for treason, or maybe, you know, uh, there's all these things that he floats all the time, and the phone doesn't ring. And the reason it doesn't ring is because we've gotten numb to the craziness. This is what I call the banality of crazy. And I think, you know, I, I looked into this in detail. When, when Trump proposed executing Mark Milley, um, it was covered in the New York Times three days later on page 14. 
And I, I submit to you that there is never a period in American history where if a presidential hopeful, the leading contender from their party, had suggested killing the top general uh, in the United States, that it would not be the biggest headline and news story for weeks, right? Mm. And the delay of three days, I mean, this is the num the numbing factor. So my worry is that we have grown so accustomed to the stuff that Donald Trump says that then the totally unusual and dangerous rhetoric is then put up against something on the Democratic side, which I do not think is is roughly equivalent. I looked at this in Google search results in the news. There were more stories written about uh, Commander Biden, Joe Biden's dog, biting someone around the same time as the story where Trump had said, maybe we should shoot shoplifters. And I, I, I submit to you that these are not of equal importance in the history of the United States. And yet there was more coverage for the novelty of the dog bite rather than uh, yeah. the sort of regularity of, of these incendiary statements. But I want to note that you acknowledge that you get pushback online. And frankly, so do we. This is a, um, a tension on this show as well as elsewhere in the media for what what's the right place on this spectrum to be. So you've received pushback in many cases when you've called out Trump's language that you find dangerous. People tell you not to amplify it because that just spreads the rhetoric. And, you know, and I don't know where the right place is to be, honestly, on that on that spectrum. I hear those things like shooting shoplifters. And I say, we have to talk about this. But then if we talk about it, people say, you're just giving Trump more oxygen. And I don't know, I think you you believe that the answer to that question is different in 2024 than it should have been in 2016. Yeah, I, I, I think the dynamics have completely changed. So I do think there was a mistake in, in 2016 where there was the unbridled uh, Trump show on most of the major news networks and CNN and so on. And you know, one estimate is that it was billions of dollars of free airtime. And the reason I think that was a mistake was because at the moment that he was doing that, he was polling very, very low. So the question that the media has to ask itself is, what is the actual state? What are the stakes of this story? Is this a leading figure? And he wasn't. He was an entertaining figure. So I think it was a mistake to amplify him and give his message the juice that it needed in order to become you know the top leader of the Republican Party. Nowadays, he is the leader of the Republican Party. So you can't just ignore him. The stuff that he says might actually become policy. And on top of that, when you don't cover things like him saying, I'm going to shoot shoplifters, well, then what happens is that people start to forget the insanity of the Trump years. And they start to remember some of the good bits and they forget some of the bad bits. And you start to get this false equivalence where it's like, oh, let's talk about the complaints we have about the current administration, but we're not hearing all these things from the sort of extreme rhetoric. Now, his base is hearing these things. And that's the thing that worries me is the, the calls for violence and so on. They're getting through to people who are on board with that. And if we ignore it, I think it's going to blindside us in a really dangerous way. So my personal view is that there's been a shift in how the media needs to think about these topics from 2016 when he was a fringe candidate originally and they amplified him to now when he is the de facto leader of the one of the two main parties in the United States. And therefore, the stuff he says is of high consequence to every voter and every citizen in the country. Is there any evidence that shows that covering Trump and his outrageous statements and frightening statements works? Because during the presidency, when Trump was president, the media covered many of his remarks like, you know, good people on both sides after Charlottesville. And there were his press briefings during the early days of the pandemic when he would say these crazy things like inject yourself with bleach. Uh, maybe that's the answer. So did we see his approval ratings impact after the media 
did say, ah, look what he said when he was president. Yeah, so the two moments that were the worst for Trump's polling were the after the Charlottesville comments that he made, the, the very fine people one, and when he was front and center for um, the, the COVID briefings. Uh, with the you know injecting disinfectant and all this type of stuff. It was unfiltered Trump and people were like, this is not great, right? I mean, this is a real, real serious problem. And those quotes, you know, the, the sort of very fine people, people, Americans know that quote. And so my my interpretation of this is that this is something where when the unfiltered Trump rhetoric that is really extreme and dangerous does filter through to people, it, it does change some minds. Now, we know that it's not going to change a lot of minds. I mean, the, the Trump base is rock solid, and he's going to win probably forty percent of the of the vote, no matter what, if he's if he's on the ballot. I think the twenty twenty four election is going to come down to whether there is a shift of three to five percentage points in the middle, and I think this is the kind of stuff where when you hear a presidential hopeful talking about executing generals and shooting shoplifters, not to mention being a dictator on day one and so on. You know, there's like there's a certain number of people who look at that and say, maybe that's not a good idea. And, you know, they're not probably the, the, the MAGA base, but they're the people who in Wisconsin and other swing states like that will probably end up uh, deciding the election. So I think it's where the, the media has an obligation, regardless, to inform people about the stakes of this election. Jay Rosen, who's at NYU, talks about this and he says the stakes, not the odds. Right. I, I talk about the magnitude of a, of a story rather than the sort of balance of a story. I think if it's an important story. You have to cover it. And the, you know, the, the guy who might be president saying we're going to kill people for petty crimes. I think that's an important story. Uh, let me get one one more caller in here that might help you tie what's in your Trump article to what's in your book. Uh, let's I think it's Pedro in Bergen County. You're on WNYC. Hi, Pedro. Oh, hi, Brian. Thank you so much for uh, taking my call. Love the uh um, the interview. I just want to bring up um, a question. You mentioned at one point uh, the uh, that the part of your theory is called the the Garden of the, the Dividing Forks or something like that. That's that's Which the name of your new. One sec. That's the, just how everybody comes along with us. That that's the name of your newsletter, Brian. Yeah, it's called the Garden of Forking Paths. It's named after a short story by Borjas in 1941. Ah, uh, which Pedro recognizes, right? Yes, that's exactly why I'm calling. It's uh, the uh, uh, Borges, uh, Jorge Luis Borges, um, also an Argentine. And uh, and it's interesting. I think, I don't know, I just wanted to get your reflection on this, because uh, Borges is known as a writer who talks about uh, chaos, fluke, probability, um, all these chance chance is a big issue, a big theme in Borges' uh, literature and short stories. And I was just wondering if this is something that uh, informed uh, uh, your title. I, I mean, in, uh, actually, I cannot see how it did not, in other words. But anyway, right. I wanted to get your... Uh, Pedro, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And you've already yeah. said that it did inform the title of your newsletter. So do you want to elaborate on it a little bit? I do. So it's actually a central theme in the book, Fluke, as well, because I, I use this analogy of the Garden of Forking Paths of saying all of us are in this garden and every step that we do isn't just changing which pathway we're on. It's changing which pathways are available to us. So everything we do slightly changes the world. And as we navigate these forking paths, we have to decide where to take our next step. But each step we take changes the paths available. And so I think this is something where when you think about social change, 
you know, the, the world is constantly changing. We have these models that imagine it's a very neat and tidy story, but I think it's not just our paths that are being affected, it's everybody else's. And I think this is where, you know, our lives are so interconnected, our societies are so interconnected that I use this metaphor of the garden of forking paths to sort of capture that idea of constant flux uh, with every decision that is made in the world. By the way, don't you love our listeners and the fact that there was somebody out there who got the Borges reference <laughs> in your newsletter title without being told? I, I am not exaggerating. This is the smartest interview that I have ever done. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, so, I am amazed. The, the questions for the college show, that was amazing. I loved it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. That, that is too nice. So I will come back around to try to tie your article on your newsletter to the book with a closing question about political punditry. You write, we are seduced by pundits and data analysts, soothsayers who are often wrong, but rarely uncertain. I love that phrase about the, the pundits. This is true in uh, sports talk and sports journalism too, right? They're often wrong, but rarely uncertain. So how would you like to see coverage of the upcoming election unfold? I would like people to say that we don't know more, more often. I mean, I, you know, I go on television sometimes. I was on you know, MSNBC this morning, for example. And one of the things you cannot say is I don't know. But sometimes you don't. You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the election. And I think that this bias that we have to always infer that there's a, a neat and tidy story with clear-cut reasons for why things happen causes us to gravitate towards simple explanations that lead us astray. And, and, and to me, you know, I'm a political scientist. I study this stuff professionally. I have no idea who's going to win the 2024 election. It's impossible to say. And that's because the world is going to change drastically in the next, you know, 10 months or so. And anyone who tells you with, oh, I know exactly what's going on, they're just lying to you. It's impossible. We don't know what's going to happen. And so... Uh, I wish that there was a bit more humility in forecasting and a bit more recognition that chaos theory tells us that, you know, the, the ability to predict the future is a pipe dream. We're not going to be in that world where we can imagine uh, the future quite clearly. It, it's another good one by my lights because some of the listeners know uh, and have heard me do this when an expert guest answers, I don't know, to a question that I ask or a listener asks um, I often praise them and say, I'm so happy when somebody is willing to say, I don't know, rather than fake it, uh, because they're, they're afraid of looking bad if they say, I don't know. So that's a good place to leave it with Brian Class. That's K-L-A-A-S, contributing writer to The Atlantic, professor of global politics at University College London. His new book is titled Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and why everything we do matters. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. And now we turn to our climate story of the week, which we do every Tuesday on the show. Tens of billions of cows, pigs, and chickens are raised and slaughtered each year for food globally. What makes this a climate story? Well, their burps, manure, and the fertilizer used to grow their feed account for somewhere around 11% of global greenhouse emissions, according to the United Nations. Other studies say it's really more like 19%. We'll get into why those different numbers in a bit. Shifting to a more plant-based diet could mitigate some of the impacts of the climate crisis, as many of you know. In July, Oxford University published new research that showed that people who follow a plant-based diet account for 75 
25% less in greenhouse gas emissions than those who eat more than three and a half ounces of meat a day. A vegan diet in particular results in what Oxford calls significantly less harm to land, water, and biodiversity. But for many Americans, the thought of going vegetarian or all the way to vegan might seem impossible, might be impossible. While Gallup reports one in four Americans want to cut back on meat, only 5% of adults are vegetarian or vegan, and most give up their diets at some point. Joining us now to discuss how meat agriculture impacts the climate and to explain how to incorporate this information into our lives in a sustainable and doable way is Kenny Torella, staff writer for Vox's Future Perfect section with a focus on animal welfare and the future of meat. He's also the author of Meat Slash Less, so it's meatless with a slash between the two words, meat slash less, which is a Vox newsletter designed to help readers incorporate more plant-based food into their diets. Kenny, thanks for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. And the estimates vary, as I noted, but what's the best number that you have for what percentage of global climate warming emissions is caused by animal agriculture? Right. So give or take around 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions stem from the meat, dairy, and eggs that we eat. As you mentioned, uh, some figures put it closer to 11%, some put it closer to 20%. But regardless of which model we use, there's no doubt that animal agriculture is one of the largest drivers of climate change. Um, Why is it so hard to measure the impact of agriculture on the climate? I mean, we're talking about one estimate, like 20%, that's double the estimate of the other from a credible source, which is around 10%. Yeah, so it varies widely because, well, for one, in the United States, we're not really monitoring emissions from agriculture. Agriculture um, is exempt from some of the key air quality monitoring monitoring laws federally. Um, Also, there's the issue that, you know, farming depends on a a variety of factors, and so do the emissions. So it depends on what you feed an animal, depends on uh, the weather, how they're raised. And so a lot of the estimates that we get are simply models. And you know, so, so the total figure that comes out at the end can be different. Um, and so one thing I'd point out too is that I believe the United Nations um, figure, which is at 11%, um, I believe it's not been peer rev- reviewed yet. And some climate scientists are skeptical about that figure because it's much lower than the 14.5% that the UN cited several years ago, and huh. meat and dairy production have increased pretty significantly since. And, huh. and uh, one of the main reasons why there could be a discrepancy is that it could be the case that they're under-emphasizing methane, um, which come from primarily from cattle and uh, dairy cows. This is maybe a tangent, but do you know why dairy production would be significantly increasing these days? Um, well, just in general, uh, globally, as countries you know, climb out of poverty and their economies grow, people tend to consume more meat and dairy. Um, and even in the United States, while consumption of fluid milk is going down, um, we're actually seeing an increase in consumption of dairy-based products like yogurt and cheese. 
Interesting. All right. So here's another uh, another number from your reporting that's going to blow some people's minds. In October, you wrote about how, quote, almost half of the continental U.S. is used for meat production. What? Where is all that land? <laughs> that's right. So you can kind of think of it as a few buckets. So um, one bucket is that, you know, the the Midwest and is really blanketed in corn and soy. And a lot of that corn and soy doesn't go to feed us. It goes to feed uh, livestock. So chickens, pigs, cows, and even fish who are farmed. Um, so much of the U.S. is devoted to, to growing food to feed the animals we then eat. But there are also large swaths of the United States, especially in the West, that are devoted to cattle grazing. Um, so you have large plots of, of public land that are loaned out to cattle ranchers at really low rates so their cattle can graze. And it can, you know, in that process, the cattle can trample on vegetation um, and pollute rivers and streams. And you mentioned soy and corn. And yeah, a lot of listeners probably do know that, but maybe a lot also don't realize that even though those are you know, obviously uh, plants um, that they're being raised to feed the cows um, for uh, the eventual goal of meat production. And I even heard um, on NPR recently how the Great Salt Lake in Utah is on the brink of collapse. And in the reporting, they cited alfalfa farming as the cause. And alfalfa has to do with meat production, doesn't it? It does, yeah. It's a primary feed crop for beef cattle and and for dairy cows. Um, and you know, this one figure really blew my mind during my reporting. I read that sixty eight percent of the available water in Utah is going to just grow alfalfa for livestock feed, wow. but it's less than one percent of the state's income. And so, you know, that led me to to write a headline saying, that we're essentially draining the Colorado River for meat and dairy production. So listeners, who has a question for our guest, Kenny Torella from Vox, uh, who writes their meat slash less newsletter. How do you say it when you say it? Do you just say meatless? Oh, I say meat and then I pause for a moment and say less. So meat, less. So this could be for those of you who have tried to eat less meat and had trouble with it, because that's the personal side of this as we talk about the impact of meat on the climate, 212-433-WNYC on our Climate Story of the Week, which we do every Tuesday, 212-433-9692, with your stories of trying to go vegetarian or vegan, or your questions about um methane and other emissions that are um, coming directly or indirectly from from uh, meat production, 212-433-WNYC, or any of the politics involved, which we're about to get to, 212-433-9692, call or text. And yeah, this is also a political story, as these things always are. You write, meat giant Tyson Foods spends a much bigger share of its revenue than ExxonMobil, lobbying Congress to stop climate policy. Tell us about that. 
That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we we may often think of, you know, the tobacco lobby in uh, in its heyday or today, the oil and gas lobby is some of the most powerful forces in Washington, and they certainly are. But um, right up there with them is uh, the meat industry and, and their lobbies. Um, and we've seen that over the last decade, the meat lobby has become increasingly concerned about its climate and environmental impact and is trying to get ahead of um, regulation as we're you know now seeing oil and gas being, being further regulated. Um, so from the meat and dairy sector, we've seen a ratcheting up of what I would consider greenwashing. You know, they're using a similar playbook as big oil did in the early 2000s of really downplaying their emissions and, and pollution and saying that, you know, look, we'll make tweaks here and there to clean up the industry and then everything will be fine. We don't need to be regulated. We can just take voluntary measures to to clean up the worst actors. Um, and one of the most recent and more startling examples of this actually comes from Tyson Foods. They're the country's largest meat producer. So the company recently launched what it's calling climate-friendly beef, um, wh you know, which is odd because beef is far and away the, the highest uh, carbon-emitting food available. And when I asked Tyson, and also I, I asked the United States Department of Agriculture about what exactly makes Tyson's beef climate-friendly, you know, if they could share data to prove this, Tyson said they would not open, <laughs> open their um, environmental accounting ledger. And the USDA said, I would have to file a Freedom of Information Act request to learn more about you know, how the USDA thought through approving this label. And it's not just the lobbyists. You write about how U.S. environmental groups haven't really addressed the issue. You think they haven't? Yeah, but by and large, the environmental movement has kind of shied away from going up against big ag. And I think there are a couple legitimate reasons to that. Um, one being that ultimately, you know, I think some groups feel like they need to stay focused on the energy sector, which is the largest source of emissions. Um, but I also think there's some, some fear uh, around going up against big ag and saying, we need to regulate meat that, you know, the U.S. and the global north should reduce its meat and dairy production and consumption, because that's not a politically popular message. People really like to eat meat um, and they, you know, want it cheap and fast. And so it's not very popular to say, look, we need to more heavily regulate this industry and we need to shift the American diet so it's not so lopsided towards meat. Listener texts this question. It says, every segment I've heard on this show about meat eaters and or vegetarian and uh, vegetarianism and veganism <clears throat> and the environment leaves out grass-fed beef or pasture-raised animals in general, like chicken and pig. So can you please have the guest address pasture-raised, grass-fed, and finished meat and how that would change the meat industry's impact on our environment? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So one thing I'll, I'll point out is that the vast, vast majority of animals raised for food, um, about 99% are raised in, in so-called factory farms. And so the kind of pasture-raised, grass-fed, organic sector is very, very small. Um, that said, you know, there are some 
environmental benefits to raising animals um, outside of factory farms. And so um, if managed right, it can you know, potentially reduce pollution. And of course, animal welfare is higher on these farms, which is, is a major positive. Um, but there are also some drawbacks. So one of them is that you know, grass-fed beef or pasture-raised animals require more land. And the drawback of that is that if you require more land to produce the same amount of meat, then it has a higher carbon footprint, which can be kind of counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. But scientists call this the carbon opportunity cost of meat. So, for example, let's say you have a patch of land. If you just let it be, let it you know, be wild, it can sequester large amounts of carbon. But if you convert it to use it for agriculture, you forego that opportunity to sequester carbon. Right. So I guess in the, some the, ways, the, the, the yeah. comparison comes down to um, how much in terms of emissions is saved because they're not using land to grow all that soy and corn and alfalfa to feed the co feed the cows, um, right? Versus whatever the cost is from using all that uh, pasture. Right. There, there was one analysis into just one farm, so this is not a representative example, but it found um, that this one for farm, I believe, in Georgia, required that used you know much more like organic and holistic farming practices. Um, was able to sequester carbon on its land, but it actually required two and a half times more land than a you know conventional right. factory operation. And so um, that's one thing I often raise in this issue is that agriculture is just full of trade-offs and you're really trying to balance a lot of factors at once. And it's, it's not so simple as say, just comparing solar energy to coal. Jason in Washington Heights, you're on WNYC. Hi, Jason. Yeah, hi, thanks very much. Uh, just two quick questions. Uh, yeah, I started substituting avocado in my salad for chickens because as far as I know, avocados are not able to suffer. But now I, I mean, avocados, as I understand it, are grown in, you know, uh, not in the United States for the most part. Uh, so there, there's a lot of carbon footprint associated with raising avocados and transporting. So I wanted to ask your guessed about those uh, calculations about the transporting of plant-based foods. And also, the other thing is, uh, you know, lab-grown meat, which I know sounds weird, but I think it's all cultivated meat. There's an organization called the Good Food Institute, which is funding a lot of uh, initiatives to develop, I think it's from stem cells or something, So, which may sound creepy, but there's nothing natural about slaughterhouses. So maybe someday the best thing for New Yorkers, if most of the food that we eat is grown in, you know, like in a lab in the Bronx or Queens. Uh, so just wondered if your guests wanted to comment on any of that. J Jason, thanks for asking both parts of that question. And I, I will know, Kenny, that uh, the most common question that we're getting on the phones and a lot of text messages has to do with uh, the fake meat, you know, impossible burgers and things like that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll go with the the question around avocados versus chicken first. So, um I think, you know, it's a it's a misunderstanding that local food is inherently more sustainable than food that comes from maybe the other side of the country or even an entirely different country. And that's because the transportation energy required to produce our food is just a tiny percent um, of a food's overall carbon footprint. Um, really, it's under 10%. So this is why I often tell people, 
it matters much more what you're eating rather than where it came from. Um, so, you know, a, a burger, a, a veggie burger shipped halfway around the world is probably going to have a lower carbon footprint than a hamburger raised at, you know, a feedlot, um, you know, 50 miles from right. your home. And I should probably clarify at this point that an impossible burger which I cited in my question, that's plant-based, right? So that's what you were just talking about. That's different than lab-grown meats. That's right. That's right. So yeah, as, as um, Jason mentioned, there is this kind of new, uh, whole brave new world uh, around the future of meat. And people are trying to figure out how to make lab-grown meat or what they call cell-cultivated meat, in which you take animal cells, you take a biopsy from an animal, and then you grow those cells, you feed them a mix of different nutrients. Um, and after several weeks, you can then harvest those cells. And, uh, you know, essentially, it's biologically identical to meat. However, right now, it's the industry is still in its infancy, it's incredibly expensive to produce this stuff. Um, it has been, it has received regulatory approval in the United States, but it's only being sold at two restaurants in very small quantities. And it's still an open question as to whether we'll ever be able to really economically scale cell cultivated or, or lab grown meat. Um, then there's this other second category of, uh, of the future of meat, which I, which is just plant-based meat. So the impossible burger, it's the beyond burger, which are really just better versions of the veggie burgers that, you know, listeners may have tried in the early 2000s, um, which are designed to taste more like meat than their predecessors. Um, and there was a bump, I would say, in the late 2010s in which there was a lot of attention around these products. But in recent years, their sales um, have declined. And it's, again, an open question as to whether consumers will really take up these products and embrace them. We have a few minutes left with Kenny Torella, staff writer for Vox's Future Perfect section with a focus on animal welfare and the future of meat. He's the author as well of the Meat Less Vox newsletter designed to help readers incorporate more plant-based foods into their diets. And we're doing this in the context of our climate story of the week. And Jen on line five, uh, Jen on line five, Jen is on line five, and she's in Randolph, New Jersey. You're on WNYC. Hi, Jen. Hi, thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I was just telling your screener that my, my husband and I went vegan um, over five years ago now, along with our daughter, um, after watching two documentaries. Um, so I wanted to recommend them perhaps to your readers on the health benefits of going vegan. Uh -huh. I'd always sort of, um, you know, been curious about it because I'm an animal lover and, but was taught in school growing up, you know, the food pyramid and that's what you need to be healthy. And um, the two documentaries we watched were the game changers and forks over knives. Um, we went vegan the day after watching them over five years ago and haven't looked back. <laughs> Is there a hardest part for you, for people, because part of the premise you know, of this segment in the first place is there are a lot of people who really would like to be more vegetarian or more vegan than they are, but they find it really daunting. So do you have any tips for converting or going, you know, whatever degree down that path? We started at first with um, a, 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 meal, a, a meal prep kit called Purple Carrot, 
Um, and I got a lot of um, great recipes through that. You know, we got um, delivery like three days a week, and it really taught me um, how to how to cook vegan um, with a lot of different variety of meals that they had. And, and so I've kind of gotten a lot of recipes from that, and that helped us, I think, with the transition. Thank you and very much. And also what? Restaurants. Also what? <laughs> so many great restu- vegan, restu- vegan oh, restaurants. Oh, are out there now. Yeah. Plant, a, plant a queen. Shout out to them. They're one of our favorites. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, another vegan, but more on the politics, Bill in Berkeley Heights. You're on WNYC. Hi, Bill. Yes, hi. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for doing this again. And, and uh, um, I've been vegan now for almost nine years. Um, uh, like a previous caller, uh, I watched uh, those two game changers, Forks Over Knives, what really did it to me was uh, Earthlings, which is narrated by uh, Joaquin Phoenix. But getting back to um, trying to uh, provide this information to everyone out there in the world, I mean, it's a little-known secret. I mean, no one realizes what animal agriculture and the devastating effects it has on our planet, not to mention, of course, what's going on with um, global, um, uh, global warming. Uh, you know, it, it does more damage than uh, the fossil fuel industry. I mean, and I and I try to bring this up to my friends, and they go and continue to eat their burgers and steaks while I'm, you know, doing my plant-based thing. And honestly, it wasn't uh, just because, uh, you know, becoming healthier. It was really uh, a moral and ethical situation for me. And uh, mm-hmm. after watching Earthlings, that's that's mm-hmm. really what uh, did it for me. And and, and you know, becoming a vegan, I just Real quick, I, I don't know where we go uh, when we go up against the lobbyists. I mean, if if your guy can tell us how to go about, I mean, I've ri- I've you know I sign every um, uh, I sign off on all those yes, and and uh, still we're not getting anywhere. Yeah. Anyway. Bill, thank thank you. And and one other fact that we haven't mentioned yet, pertinent to the success of the lobbyists, is that agriculture is one of the most subsidized industries in the United States. According to one government website that we saw in 2022, the federal government provided farms with more than $15 billion in subsidies. So what do you say to the caller, Kenny? Yeah, I think, you know, we go to the the grocery store and we see, you know, an abundance of meat, dairy and egg products and think, and, you know, and they're, they're incredibly cheap, but those prices don't really reflect the, the true cost. And, um, that's because for decades, agricultural policy um, has exempted farms uh, primarily from, you know, clean, uh, clean water laws and clean air laws and also animal welfare laws. Um, and so the the price of meat and the abundance of meat has been you know shaped through food policy, through corporate policy. Um, and there's a lot we can do to reform it. So one, yes, we could reform subsidies um, so that they're shifted more towards uh, plant-based, more sustainable foods. Um, and I think there, there could be a lot more done to regulate factory farms for water pollution and air pollution. You know, farms are the leading source of water pollution in the United States, and most of that is coming from fertilizer runoff from the, the farms that grow corn and soy um, and also the animal manure itself. Um, and then there's also a lot that I think corporations can do to try to um, incentivize consumers to eat more plant-based foods, whether that's making their 
products, um, product lines feature more plant-based foods um, to make them taste better. So while a lot of times this conversation kind of falls on the individual to change their diet, there's so much that policymakers, elected officials, um, agencies, and corporations as well could do to reshape our food system to be more healthy and more sustainable. Listener texts, I tell people getting off meat, salt, and sugar takes between three months and two years. We still eat red meat and fish every 10 days, but I personally could easily say goodbye to these products. My girls do crave red meat, though. So there's a little advice from a listener about uh, how to go gradual. Um, and we're just about at time. There's so much more that we could talk about. I, I know you've written about President Biden's landmark climate legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, and that it included $20 billion for what they call climate smart farming. Um, we could give people more advice on making a transition. Um, you, you wrote about how protein is usually actually not an issue, but maybe B12, vitamin B12 is, but there are ways to compensate. But let me ask you about this as a closing um, closing question. You, you've made the case that people should cut out meat from their diets as much as possible. But how should people think, in your opinion, about cheese and eggs? So say if someone is buying free-range organic eggs or cabbage cheese made by family farms in New York and Vermont regionally, is that impacting the climate significantly? Yeah, so it varies, you know, what factors you're looking at. So just um, maybe let's look at eggs first. So when just looking at emissions, eggs are a pretty low um, carbon food. At the same time, poultry production is a major source of, of water pollution. So there are trade-offs there. Um, when it comes to dairy, whether it's, you know, whether dairy cows are raised on a conventional factory farm or on, you know, a more organic style farm, they are still major uh, drivers of climate change. I mean, globally, just the dairy industry has a higher carbon footprint than the aviation industry. Um, so whether dairy is being sourced from, you know, say a smaller family owned farm or from a large corporation, it's still gonna have that high carbon footprint. And there we leave it for our climate story of the week for this week. Kenny Torella is a staff writer for Vox's Future Perfect section with a focus on animal welfare and the future of meat. He's also the author of the Vox newsletter, Meat Less or Meat Slash Less, which is designed to help readers incorporate more plant-based food into their diets with uh, specific tips and pieces of advice. So, Kenny, this has been great. We've ranged really wide here. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. I'm Ira Flato, host of Science Friday. For over 30 years, our team has been reporting high-quality news about science, technology, and medicine. News you won't get anywhere else. And now that political news is 24-7, our audience is turning to us to know about the really important stuff in their lives. Cancer, climate change, genetic engineering, childhood diseases. Our sponsors know the value of science and health news. For more sponsorship information, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org.
Brian Lehrer on WNYC, and we're going to spend our last 15 minutes today with a look at a certain piece of modern dating. You know, nowadays anything is possible. Men can date men, women marry women, everything in between. Sorry, Ron DeSantis, I think it's a good thing. But what happens when a man is married to a woman who dates a man who's married to a woman? What does that even mean? Did you even follow that? Well, that kind of situation is what some might call a polycule. So listeners, are you in a polycule, a polyamorous relationship of any sort? Are you part of a polycule or do you call it something else? 212-433-WNYC, 9692 call or text. Why do I bring this up today? Well, because last week, The Cut, part of New York Magazine, published a piece bringing us inside a polycule, and it was really interesting. In it, we meet Nick and Sarah and Alex and Anna, whose relationship is best explained through Google Calendar. Quote, Sarah and Nick share a calendar. Nick and Anna share a calendar. Alex and Anna share a calendar. Sarah and Anna do not share a calendar, but are aware of who has Nick's time on any given day. Same for Nick and Alex, Alex, unquote. And all of this points to the importance of time and scheduling when maintaining multiple relationships. After all, many monogamous folks already have it hard enough Uh, making time just to tend to their one relationship while juggling children, work, friendships, family, alone time, God forbid. So listeners, if we have anybody out there who's in a polycule or any other polyamorous relationship, how do you manage your time? How do you embrace the modern approach of sharing Google calendars? Or do you have set days where you're free to have other dates? And how do you go about communicating with your various partners about this and even raising the subject if you would like to consider being polyamorous. 212-433-WNYC-433-9692. We'll see if we get any calls. But we're going to talk to the writer of the article now and take a deeper look at how Sarah and Nick and Anna and Alex are tackling these issues. It's one of the contributors to the Cuts piece. What does a polycule actually look like? And it's none other than our old friend Anya Kamenitz, who's the author of the parenting newsletter, The Golden Hour, and author of The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. Uh, she's an advisor to the Aspen Institute and the Climate Mental Health Network. And yes, that Anya Kamenitz, who was the uh, NPR education reporter for a long time. Anya, welcome back to the show. Hey, Brian. Uh, happy to be with you. How'd you get interested in polycules? You know, I've been writing a lot for The Cut, and they just reached out to me because they said that, you know, uh, I like doing interviews, and I like talking to people about their choices and their modern families. So I'm one of five uh, writers on this piece, and collectively we talked to dozens of people in all different kinds of relationships. Um, so where would you like to start, whether it's through scheduling and Google Calendar or anything else about uh, Alex and Anna, and I'm losing track of the names, but those four people? <laughs> Right. I think all those names are made up. But I think that oh. the point here is, <laughs> why are people doing these things, right? Why are they exploring different models for relationships? And, you know, I think um, I can at least remember as in my parents' generation, we had free love. There was Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Uh, you might have heard more about swinging in the 80s. And what's called ethical non-monogamy these days is really a byproduct, I think, of people 
realizing that they don't have to take their relationship model off the shelf. So they are really thinking about uh, what works for us and what can we do, not assuming that we're having sort of a patriarchal model of, you know, a man owns a woman and owns a woman's choices. We all know that in that model, there were always double standards and you always had, you know, a lot of people doing unethical non-monogamy. And so these are people uh, trying to do it differently. We've we've done at least one call in on the show previously um, for people in open marriages. Mm-hmm. But the word polycule is new to me. Is it different <laughs> than just being in an open marriage? Is it like like what I think I'm taking from your story of these two couples is, is that it's a you know it's two married couples who are specifically sharing with each other. Well, so um, so the the polycule in the lead story, um, which is by Alison Davis, is about basically you've got two couples, both of whom date other people, and then the man from one couple dates the woman from the other couple and they're they're somewhat well they're connected to each other so i think polyamory is really characterized by multiple committed and loving relationships um and i think what's new ish or what's what's emerging in the world of ethical non-monogamy is people are really questioning hierarchies so they're questioning the the idea that just because you are married to one person um, doesn't mean that they should automatically have the the major claim on your time. And so, you know, can we each actually take each relationship um, on its own terms and think about what they mean? Um, and so that's something that I think a lot of couples uh, that I talk to are really thinking hard about. How did jealousy come up in your reporting or that of your colleagues? You know, I think that's probably the number one question that people have about non-monogamy. Um, what is interesting and challenging when you dip into this world is that uh, number one, uh, people talk about the opposite of jealousy. So there's a word that was coined um, by in the book, The Ethical Slut, which is compersion, which is actually the pleasure that you can take in seeing your partner be happy, um, whether they're happy you know, with a new person, they're happy feeling attractive. So that's an interesting and challenging kind of flip of the script. The other point about jealousy, I think, is that just because you feel jealous doesn't mean that you control the other person. So, you know, we know that in our culture, like just because you feel angry, it doesn't justify necessarily controlling someone else's choices. And yet in our script for monogamous relationships, we think of jealousy as something that if I feel jealous, that means you're doing something wrong. Um, And for the non-monogamous people I talk about, they feel jealousy, but they use it as a starting point of a conversation. They don't necessarily say, because I feel jealous, you have to stop doing what you're doing. Alex in Delaware County, you're on WNYC. Hi, Alex, that's Delaware County, New York. For those of you who don't know, hi. Hi. Um, I think this conversation is really interesting. I've been polyamorous for 10 years, and I really like... um, what you were just bringing about jealousy and how it's the beginning of a conversation. Um, I think there are a lot of emotions that we think about, like anger, that we would never say, oh, I'm never going to work on my anger. This is just an emotion that I'm going to feel forever. I think for us, jealousy is a way to identify other underlying needs that we have and having discussions with our partners on how to meet them. What's an example of of an underlying need that you think jealousy points to, if you have one, Alex? Sure. Um, it could be that it's a fear 
let's say my partner is doing um, something with another partner that is special to us, like a certain activity or something like that. It's kind of a fear that our love is going to go away. And a lot of that can be worked out through discussions, through scheduling. Like a lot of people fear that there will be less time for them. And I think that having these conversations and scheduled time together can really help people mm-hmm. um, just have expectations. And something else that I want to bring up is that for me, you know, I've gone through, we, you were just talking about hierarchy. And I think it is a big conversation right now, whether hierarchy is good or not. I think in this culture, it's very difficult to begin non-monogamy without doing any hierarchy at all, because that's just what we grew up seeing everywhere. But for me, once I realized that a metamor, so a partner's other partner, can bring to my, can also bring to my life. I, I'm from Montreal originally. I moved to New York City. I was in polyamory. I really wanted close friendships, and I had a really hard time building them. And then when my partner started having other partners, I discovered that there was just a very special kind of intimacy that we were able to build because we both loved the same person romantically, mm. and that gave us a way to build our own relationship. Wow. And I realized, wow. As opposed to be je- if, jealous of each other. Right, exactly. Because if this person I love loves someone else, like, look, I'm not saying that you're always going to love the person that your partner is dating. But for me, I realized, oh, if this person I love loves this other person, there are good chances that we would get along and we have things in common. Mm-hmm. And then they became someone who added to my life. And now actually if a partner of mine starts dating someone and that person does not want a relationship with me, it's really sad. (laughs) It's kind of, and same with someone that I date. I want this person to want relationships and that's, I'm definitely having an approach that is not so hierarchical anymore. So you might have poly polycules. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you for opening up like that. I really appreciate it. I think our listeners really appreciate it. And let's go to Mars in Crown Heights. Mars, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hi, how's it going? Good. You have a story too, huh? Yeah. So I just wanted to say, like, so the article has been kind of, like, pinging around all the different, like, poly group chats and, like, Discord uh, channels, right? And one of the things that like we were talking about was it really um i think obviously most people are interested in like how do you become poly by opening up in a pre-existing couple like relationship whereas i think for many other people um who are not really represented in many stories like there are a lot of people who are solo poly meaning we um for example i very recently became poly was in a monogamous relationship for years and then when I started to date again, I was like, I think I want to do this from the position of being solo poly, meaning uh, going out with the intention of um, dating multiple people, but not necessarily with an existing partner. And I think that really changes your perspective on dating, because I think especially for young people, we've become really disillusioned with dating culture, where it's just like you date a ton of people, and it's like, they're not like the one or the perfect fit. Like it's like a situationship or like, you know, it's not worth pursuing. But I think coming from the perspective of solo polyamory and understanding all like the beautiful differences that you can have out of different relationships, just different people. 
and also like resisting the I think the pressure of what we call like um the relationship escalator where this idea that like if you don't escalate a relationship to like these kind of traditional milestones that that relationship isn't as important as kind of what we would understand it to be in a a monogamous Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. couple relationship. Um, Anya, do you want to talk to Mars or reflect on any of that? Sure. I mean, one of the um, people I talked to for the article was also sort of solo, solo poly. And I think that it's a very empowering reframe of the dating um, world, you know, that people can really think about what are the parts of a relationship or the parts of different types of people that I want to explore and different kinds of intimacy um, that I want to be a part of before I necessarily find someone that I want to go deeper with and, and build a different kind of partnership. So I, I think it's just an example of the creativity that comes in for a lot of people who are exploring non-monogamy. Mars, thank you very much. Um, can I sneak one more in here? Or it's, I don't know, this might be too deep a story for the amount of time we have. <laughs> but April, if you're willing, we have 30 seconds for you. Yes, I can make it quick, thanks. Uh, my dad was a swinger in the 70s, and as a teenager, it was uh, really confusing uh, and damaging to some extent. But it has left me with this open question, would I want to do polyamory? Because I saw the benefits to it, so I'm kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? I really don't know which road to go down. I really don't know where to invest my emotional, you know, discovery in this. That's as short as I can make it. April, thank you very much. So, Anya, in your last 30 seconds, I don't know if you have any (laughs) any advice for April or if you want to just um, point people to the the article set on the cut and say what you hope they'll get out of it. Yeah, I really do people I hope that people will read, explore and reflect no matter what your relationship style or status is. The question of what uh, what to tell the kids or if to tell the kids or the impact on the kids is one article um, within it. And I think that's, you know, that's important because if we really are talking about not just dating, but the future of your fair families. Um, and so, yeah, I hope people will check it out and let us know what they think. Anya Kamenitz wrote one of those articles. In the cut from New York Magazine, she's author of the parenting newsletter, The Golden Hour, and the book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go From Now, and an advisor to the Aspen Institute and the Climate Mental Health Network. Anya, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Brian Lehrer Weekend. We're back on the radio Monday morning at 10 a.m. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Brian Lehrer or Facebook.com slash Brian Lehrer WNYC, where there's always a conversation 24-7.